My name is Art Cash, uh, discipleship pastor here at River Oaks, and it'll be my privilege today to talk to you about Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19. So let me pray for us. Uh, Father, as my sister Jill prayed, help us. It'll be by your, your power and by your Holy Spirit that we have eyes to see what is true. Father, you've, you've given us new hearts by your Spirit. Help us see reality in line with the new hearts that you've given us, with the Holy Spirit that you've given us. Please do this through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to show you a video here for a second. This is Peter Hughes. So I'm going to narrate it for you. There's no sound. But this is Peter Hughes, and he's a, he's a dad of three in, in Pennsylvania. And he's like 10 million people in the United States. He's colorblind. It's browns, greens, reds, oranges, yellows, they all kind of blend together, blue and purple. It's all the same. He's getting glasses today. Glasses that help him see. And I, I love this because he's, he's overcome with emotion. He, he's seen flowers in a new way. He's seen his kids in a new way. He's so excited he doesn't know what to do with his hands, which endears great empathy for me because when I decided I'm the same way. You can see he's overcome with emotion. His entire world has, has changed from, from a dull blend to vibrancy. So you can take it to the, to the next slide. I want you to think about Peter's situation before he got those glasses that helped him see in color. How would, you, how would you try and explain to him? How would you describe a flower? How would you describe the, the color of his, of his children's eyes? How would you try and, like, here's what a rainbow looks like, Pete. <laughs> how would you describe it? How could, how could you help him see how could you convince him of the vibrancy of, of the world around him? That there'd be no way for him to conceive of it until he put those glasses on and got to see it for himself, see it with his own eyes. So as we get into our, our passage this morning, I, when I ask the question, are there truths about God that you're blind to? Sometimes when you look around, is it, does it seem like there are people around you that are seeing the reality of God in color, vibrant color, high def, and you're just seeing it in kind of this grainy black and white experience? I'd ask you to, to, to go ahead and be praying. Just as Paul is praying for the Ephesians, go ahead and be praying that the Spirit would open your eyes and help you see that he would bring the light up on what's dark. And for those this morning who you're seeing Christ more clearly, he, he started becoming much more vibrant and, and clear to you as we were in First and Second Samuel. You got to see even more of him. And in Matthew, you saw truth about him in Ecclesiastes. Or maybe you're just visiting. You're just walking in off the street, but you're fired up about Jesus. Great. That is a work of the Spirit in you. Praise God. So what is it exactly from our passage here that Paul is praying 
for the Ephesian church to see and believe? What does he want them to see and believe? We'll start in, in verse 15 and, and read uh, down through 19 through our passage today. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his, of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Paul wants the Ephesians, we see it in verse 17, he wants them to know God, better, wisdom, revelation, knowledge. From verse 18 and 19, Paul is praying the Ephesian believers would, would know, would have iron-clad conviction of three things. Hope, riches of his inheritance, and immeasurable power. So I want us to go ahead and just let our guard down a little bit. Let ourselves be in this story for a few minutes. Let the guard down from, from the distance, how long ago this was, how far away it was, and to consider that what's actually being prayed for here, that what Paul is praying for the Ephesians is just as true for us, for every Christian sitting here today. We need to not just assume it, but really ponder it. Hope, inheritance, and power. Three things that sound way too good to be true. If we're being completely honest, again, we're letting our guard down. So if we're being completely honest, that sounds too good to be true. And you've probably been conditioned from an early age. You can finish my sentence for me. If something's too good to be true, then it probably is. Okay? That's what we've been told our entire lives. We want proof. I need to see it to believe it. You can tell me, but I need to see it. I need to experience it. So then that brings us to our main point. Because what we have in Christ is so good, we need the Spirit. We need Him to help our hearts see it and believe it. So I want you to think about these Ephesians for a minute. They're, they're surrounded by a culture that's put their hope in, in wealth, in health, Commerce, trade, knowledge, false gods and false pleasures. This church feels small. They feel powerless. They're surrounded by darkness and the power of evil. We can deduce what their lives were like from the way that Paul describes the lives they left behind in Ephesians 4, 18 through 19. He's saying, walk away from who you used to be. Here's who they were. Their minds were futile. They were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The trouble for this church doesn't end there. In chapter 6, Paul describes them wrestling 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and forces of evil. Brothers and sisters, Ephesus was a dark place and it was a dark time. In a lot of ways, it sounds really similar to where we are today. So we need what the Ephesians needed. We need the eyes of our hearts opened so we can see and be encouraged by the light shining in the darkness. They needed to be encouraged to see more than just their present culture, just their world, just their circumstances. They needed unshakable hope and the power of God to not be afraid. So do we. So I want you to look in verse 18 and see this fascinating phrase where where Paul prays for them to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. You may hear enlightenment and think Eastern mysticism. The enlightenment here is lights, brightness, light shining into darkness. That's what Paul has in mind. We know biblically that our hearts, they're not just our feelings, not just our emotions. Our hearts are who we are. All of us, mind, will, personality, emotions, Seeing with our heart, it, it flows out of this passage. It flows out of all of Scripture. I mean, Jesus is the one who said it in Matthew 6. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is as well. In other words, our view of reality, it's shaped by what we love. What we love determines what we see. We know this is true biblically. We know it's true from experience. Okay? SEC refs see one thing, UT football fans see another. You're on a diet, and all you can see are Lambert pies. Okay, that's, that's me, my belly. You're at the school program, and sure, all, all the kids are cute. They're all cute, but you can only see your child. You have eyes for him, for her. We see what we love. So as Christians, we've been given new hearts and new desires. Paul is praying for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, to be impacted. Our hearts need to be changed to see this new reality that we have in Christ. It's like Peter Hughes seeing a world of color. It's like Elisha's servant in 2 Kings 6. I love this story. He's terrified as the enemy chariots surround he and Elisha. And Elisha prays for the Lord to open his eyes. And the Lord opens his eyes and he sees. And the servant sees chariots of fire all around them. And it changes him. Oh, I see what's really happening here. That is our call this morning. So I I pray again, I ask the Father, Lord, open our eyes Direct our hearts to see the hope, the inheritance, and the power that we have because we're united to your Son. Holy Spirit, shine the light into darkness, please. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verse 18, what what is the hope to which he's called us? Well, first we need to talk about what hope is not. Hope is not wishing, okay? I, I hope that the rise of Skywalker redeems the mess that was the last Jedi. Okay, that's a personal hope of mine. That is a 
I don't know, a worldly hope, but it's also reasonable. Come on, it's J.J. Abrams this time. I've got some hope there that things will be different. Okay, biblical hope, it's so much different. The New Testament, hope means absolute certainty, fully confident, joyfully expectant. This is what, what biblical hope looks like. It, it can only come through Christ. We, we know this because if you flip over, just this will be fun. Flip over to 2.12 with me. Um, help my eyes here. Okay, remember that you were at that time, remember this is before Christ, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here's the good news. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is hope. So this hope, it's a gift. It's accomplished by Jesus. So back in verse 18, Paul describes hope as the hope to which he's called you. That, that's the hope found in the calling of our salvation. Dear Christian, God would have you know. He would have you be certain. He would have you see with your heart that you were elected before the foundation of the world by the Father. That your salvation was accomplished by the redeeming blood of the Son and sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul just spent so much time going through in, in verses 3 through 14. The, the hope in his calling, it's not meant to be controversial. It's meant to build confidence. Ironclad hope. Paul's pointing the Ephesians to their election and their salvation because this is exactly, we know this is exactly where the enemy likes to, likes to attack. He, he can't take a Christian salvation, but he can tempt you to doubt it. He can, he can tempt you to ignore the joy that you could have as a result of your election and salvation. He can darken the eyes of your heart with his accusations. Saying, this sin, this, this, this same sin over and over and over, are you sure the blood of Christ covers it? Are you sure? He can accuse in such a way that you feel like hiding, isolating, instead of confessing and running to the Father. He's a manipulator. He loves to sow doubt where there should be absolute certainty. So our, our hope is in eternity past, in our election before the foundation of the world. Our hope is an absolute certainty for the future. We see this in, in all over Scripture, but in 1 John 3, 2, we, we hope in him now because we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We, we won't need anyone to try and convince us of what we can't see. No more, I'm, I'm looking for the best argument. I'm looking for the best illustration. We'll see it. We won't need special glasses. We'll see him as he is. So I remember seeing pictures of, of Zion National Park, and I understand the irony of showing you a picture of Zion National Park here. But I, I saw pictures, and, and 
before visiting, I'm like, man, that's, that's going to be beautiful. It, it's, it's gorgeous. But there were times actually being in that park, looking up at, or looking down, and, and just being speechless. And that's tough to, to get me to a point where I, I don't have something to say. It's incredible. And I'm trying to persuade you through a, a little picture on a, on a screen. Imagine what it will be like finally seeing Jesus as he is. Past hope, future hope can transform the way we live right now. This bedrock certainty of our salvation, this ironclad confidence of our future glorification, it gives us an anchor. It gives us an unshakable hope in the present. It can change our hearts to see our circumstances in a different light. These Ephesian believers, they'd likely been forsaken by family, lost income, possibly had their lives threatened because they confessed Christ. They needed to see, is it worth it? So Paul prays, prays fervently that their hope in Christ would strengthen them right now. So perhaps nowhere in Scripture is this past, present, future hope more, more obvious than Romans 5. Again, flip there if you want to. If you don't, I'll talk you through it. It'll be fun, okay? Romans 5, we see it. We've been justified by faith, Romans 5.1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's past hope in what Christ has done for you. Then through Christ, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Present tense, we stand in it. Present hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, future hope. So then how does all of that hope impact us right now? Right now in our sufferings, we know biblically we need the Spirit to help us see that our suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. So that, that changes things for us. Then all of a sudden, the next time we're suffering, we're not thinking, all right, this is, this is God punishing me one more time. This is God pushing me away. No, this is God refining you, building character showing you hope in suffering, strengthening you. And then what? That hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because according to Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts according to the Holy Spirit. We see the echo of that. We see that amplified right here in our passage. Our past, present, and future hope, it unites us to believers. This isn't the, again, this isn't the hope that unites Star Wars fans or UT football fans. This is a bedrock certainty, past, present, future hope that unites us as believers. Ephesians 4, 4, one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. As believers, we're unified around this hope, not a bunch of different hopes. That, that means when we get together in, in growth group or over coffee as friends, 
when we get together, we always have something to talk about. We always have something that, that unites us over the personal preferences, differences, and annoyances that might divide us. We have a reason for the joy. We have something to remind each other of. It's our hope. So I would ask you to think about this question in growth group this week or lunch with friends. In what situations are you most tempted to treat biblical hope like any old hope? Where has biblical certainty, hope in Christ, where, where has that been diminished for you and why? What situations are you most tempted you're thinking, well, I hope I'm saved. I hope I have enough faith. I hope there's enough fruit to go with my faith. Ask a brother or sister to, to, to pray with you, to talk with you. Sometimes we're blind to this and we need the help of a partner who has the Holy Spirit in them to shine a light where we can't see so our hope in Christ is, is so good. We need the Spirit's help to believe it. The same is true for the riches of his inheritance in the saints. We see this in the second part of verse 18. Mitchell Slater did a fantastic job of describing how God is our inheritance and we are his from verse 11. Verse 18 makes explicit this emphasis that we are his inheritance. Believers are the riches of his glorious inheritance. Now, for me, this is, I don't know about for you, but for me, this is where the inner critic raises his head and goes, are you sure? <laughs> uh, inheritance, maybe. Riches, glorious, nah. It, 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 I, I can totally see it's, it's like Aunt Mildred died. And I have no problem picturing myself as the hideous yellow lamp that gets left to the family member who knows they have to keep it, but really has no idea what to do with it. I can see that. I'm the lamp. But the word here is, is not hideous, it's, it's riches. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. It's, it's like we need to read this over and over again to believe it. We need the Holy Spirit to help us see it. So being the riches of his inheritance helps our hearts to see two things more clearly, security and dignity. And we talked about the hope of election, how secure believers are in Christ, but I want to double down on that security because Scripture does. Completely secured in election to salvation and secure in Christ since you are an inheritance to him. You belong to the king, to the one who made you and redeemed you. So there may be times where you shortchange yourself, but do you think the one who made you and saved you would shortchange himself? Now think this through. Okay, the father poured out wrath upon his son that was absolutely precise. A, a payment was made for a debt 
that could not otherwise be paid to the penny. It was measured out for every sinner who would believe, no more, no less. He then gives the Holy Spirit to believers to to dwell in them, to be a blessing to others for gifts. To, to, To put it mildly, the triune God has gone to a lot of trouble to inherit us. The Father has generously invested in you at the cost of his Son and giving you his Spirit. Do you think somehow that he won't see that all the way through? He will. We know it. We see it in John 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. He's greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He saved you to himself for all eternity. So then that means you have dignity and value right now. In a a God-centered, gospel-centered church, we spend time, we spend energy rightly emphasizing the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the focus of all we do because that's the focus of Scripture. A temptation, though. A temptation is is to so carefully avoid being man-centered that we diminish the inherent dignity and value we each have. Because we're made in the image of God. We are the riches of his inheritance. We can get comfortable. I'm much more comfortable saying, I'm a wretch. I'm a worm. I'm the chief of sinners. Paul thinks, I'm the chief of sinners. We're much more comfortable with that. I'm just a rebel. But that's only half the story. We can forget the simultaneous and simultaneously a sinner and a saint. Oh, brother, if we could see it, we are who Scripture says we are. You have value and dignity because he created you, redeemed you, and declares you to be his forever. So you may question your own character, but you may not question his. You may question your own sense of worth, but through Christ, he makes you worthy. You may question your own value, but he values you enough to send his son to live, to die and to be resurrected in order to redeem you to himself. Now, it might make us uncomfortable to say that we have value to the Lord, but there's a difference in need and value. He doesn't need us, yet he chooses to value us. That's remarkable. (laughs) That actually makes saving grace that much more miraculous. Humble gratitude should be our response when rebels are made sons, when sinners are declared saints, and the Lord says, you are the riches of his glorious inheritance forever. That has huge implications in how we see each other, how we treat each other. Brothers and sisters, We read it in James, the same mouth that blesses the Lord curses a brother. 
when, when we ignore, when we criticize, when we make fun of, when we gossip or we insult a fellow believer, we need eyes to see who it is that we're actually talking to. As fellow heirs that are also the inheritance, we need the Spirit to help us see, to see one another as we one day will be. This quote from Tim Keller helps us, helps us capture this. Look at your fellow Christian. Get a glimpse of what God is creating. Say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. Right there, if I'm completely honest, I'm prone to see in people that I love disappointment. You're, you're, you're not there yet. I, I see what God is, is not doing. I need the Holy Spirit to give me eyes to see what he is doing. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey that you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got a glimpse of it on earth, but now look at you. Is Tim Keller going too far? To, to say that each one of us will be there in, in magnificence? I don't think so. Because part of what Jesus Christ is doing by the power of his spirit is restoration. We won't believe it. What each one of us is designed to be in the presence of God. We need the Holy Spirit to help us see. Help us believe. So we have certain hope. We are the riches of his glorious inheritance. And then in verse 19, Paul is praying the Ephesian believers and that Christians everywhere reading this letter would see and believe that God is, God's power is for us. It's interesting right there. He uses us. He's including himself as well. Here in verse, let me just read verse 19. That would be, that would be good. He wants us to see and know. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power Toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. So Paul's like, he's stacking up descriptions here. He's trying to help us see God's power. It's without measure, it's, it's raw strength, it's explosive. This is where preachers like to point out that the word power is where we get the word dynamite, okay? It doesn't end there, though. This is when Paul goes on to describe God's working. That means propulsion power. His great might, conquering power. And you'll see next week in, in verse 20 and following, it's resurrection power. So this power described in verse 19, is, it's not just the potential, it's present power for the believer. Who is the power for in verse 19? That, and that towards means, it, it, it means among and for, okay? Only those who believe. So you know how with, with God, everything's kind of upside down from the way the, the world sees it. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. Jesus came for the sinner, not the righteous. Jesus blessed the poor in spirit, not the haughty. Well, here's another one of those gospel ironies. This power is available to the weak, not the strong. 
If you are proud, self-reliant, and have no sense of your need for the power of God, this power is not for you. If you don't need it, it's not for you. But here's the good news. You're not left without hope. You could pray right now to ask the Spirit to open the eyes of your heart to see your great need for his power. You could ask the Spirit to help you see that you are weak and he is strong. 2 Corinthians 12 shows us clearly that God's power is available to those who know they're weak. In fact, God's power is made perfect in weakness, according to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. So, brothers and sisters, if you see, if you know that Jesus took you, a morally and spiritually bankrupt rebel, and made you a son, made you a daughter, then God's power is available to you because you know your need The awesome truth here is it's actually the power of God that shows you your need for the power of God. If you're a believer, then at some point the Spirit, He's shown light into your dark heart. He showed you your desperate need for the righteousness of Christ. And by His strength, His might, His power, you believed. We know from Romans 1 The gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. That is saving power. If you're a Christian this morning, it's how you came to the Lord. That's not the end of the power, sanctifying power. The same power that saved you is the same power that now sustains you. As we mature in Christ, we are acutely aware of our need for the power of God because we have an increasing awareness of the powers that we're up against. It, it, it scares me for the, for the Christians like, I, yeah, the world, got it. Yeah, devil, got it. Yeah, uh, sin, I'm, I'm good. I know what I need to know. Do you? Do you know what you're up against with those three enemies, their power? Do you know? The devil's a deceiver. So we add to his schemes the power of the world and our own sinful desires. They are at war with the power of God. We feel the pull every waking second, if we're honest. We feel it from our own sinful nature, from the world. That message that you are the most important thing in the universe. My life my pleasure, my power, my body, my preferences, my life, my time, my money. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth. The truth is that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. We need his power to help us see and believe. Part of maturing as a a Christian is becoming increasingly aware that you need this. You need him to help you see. You need him to help you believe. You need him to help you fight. So we know that this this saving, sanctifying, sustaining power is there, but, but what about the days when you can't see it? 
You can't feel it. What do you do when the, the sun is behind the clouds? You know it's there, but you can't see it. So right before World, World War II in, in the town of Itasca, Texas, 263 children lost their lives in a tragic school fire. Now after the war, the, the town rebuilt the school. They ensured that they had a state-of-the-art sprinkler system put in that new school. It was the most advanced thing that money could buy at the time. They gave tours. The honor students would have citizens come in and, and officials, and they would give tours to, to the school, and they would show the, the sprinkler system. It was as if to say, a fire like what happened back, it will never happen here again. Was well, the town and the, the school expanded, they remodeled the school. As they did so, they found that the sprinkler system had never been connected. It's incredulous, right? Yet that's, that's often how we operate as, as Christians in our lives. And the truth is, we have the sprinkler system. We have the full available power of the water. There's a raging fire, and what we'd rather do is ignore the sprinkler system, get a cup of water, our own efforts, to try and put it out. Why? Here's the question from, from Brian Chapel about this verse. How do you make spiritual power apparent to God's people who are preoccupied and oppressed with the material world? We have resurrection power. Help us, help us feel it, see it, know it, believe it. What do we do? We, we pray and we preach. We pray and we preach. We pray like Paul in this prayer, asking that the eyes of our hearts could see. We pray like the end of Ephesians 3. We pray that we would be strengthened through the power of his spirit in our inner being. We pray for Christ to dwell in our hearts by faith. We pray that we could be rooted and grounded in love. We pray that we would be strengthened to comprehend, to lay hold of, to seize, to make our own the breadth, the length, the height and depth of the love of Christ. We pray to be filled with the fullness of God. And if we don't feel like praying, we ask a brother or sister to pray for us. When is the last time? I know we, we, we assume about praying. Yeah, I pray. When's the last time you wrestled with God in prayer? You pled with him. Fill me with the fullness of God. Please. pray and we don't take prayer for granted second we preach we preach to ourselves we preach truth to ourselves from the word and if we're at a low point I would encourage you before you get to the low point where we can't tell ourselves truth we ask a brother or sister to remind us of what's true from God's word. It takes humility and it takes intentionality. But you see this community theme. Paul wasn't praying for individuals. He was praying for the church in Ephesus. We are a family who needs to be able to reach out to one another and say, I, I'm not believing it. I'm not seeing it. I'm not feeling it. Pray for me. Preach to me. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I wish we had the, the Staples easy button. I, I do. I would love an easy button. You just press the easy button, and then all of a sudden the Christian life is smooth. 
No doubts, no sin, no struggles, no attacks. We could wish that it's that way now, but if, if, if being a Christian were easy, if there was no suffering and no sin, would we have a sense of our need for his power? Without suffering, without an awareness of our own weakness, would we know that we need the working of his great might and strength? So when we preach to ourselves, we do it by turning to the word. We know that that's where we find wisdom, revelation, and knowledge of him. Power is available to us in the word. Not not in some mystical, magical way, but in a very straightforward way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. So you know those headlamps that people wear when they're like camping at night or maybe if you're more adventurous, you're spelunking, you're, you're uh, investigating a, a cave, the headlamps. Why would we try and navigate around a cave in the dark without turning that thing on? We had the Holy Spirit within us. So even when we don't feel like it, when we can't see it, we can lead our feelings instead of being led by them. That's the power of God. We can go to the Word and once again read the truth, the truth of our hope, our inheritance, and the power towards us who believe. So as we close, pray with me. Pray as Paul did for the Ephesians. Father, thank you that you know us and you want us to know you. Spirit, please shine the light into the dark places in our hearts. Places where we have our eyes shut to the hope that we have in Christ. Holy Spirit, help us see that we belong to Jesus. That the Father has given us to him as an inheritance. Not because we're worthy, but because you give us worth. Spirit, help us see the power in us that raised Christ from the dead. The power that's a gift. Your power that saved us and saves us still. Father, help us to glorify you for who you are and all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.